Statistically, more than three quarters of parents of young children aren't up to date with paediatric first aid, with over half not knowing how to perform CPR on a child. While we all hope we'll never be in a situation where we need to use these skills, knowledge is power and learning simple first aid can give you the confidence you need if it ever does. To find out more about this important topic from CPR to what you should have in your medicine cupboard, I'm joined by Jenny Dunman from Daisy First Aid and GP Dr. Lucy Hooper. Welcome Jenny and Lucy. Thank you for joining Hello. me remotely today. <laughs> Hi. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. I am all ears. Um, I did a first aid course many years ago and I would love to say I've retained all the knowledge but I'm not sure what is left behind and as I said you know we obviously hope we don't find ourselves in a position of needing to do CPR on our children but there are lots of other questions from whether you should use cowpole to um, neurofen etc etc that we will cover today but can we start off by you telling us a bit more about yourselves um, do you have children yourselves if so what are their ages Jenny let's start with you yeah my name is Jenny Dunman I have got three children who are currently being homeschooled yes yeah, so my former life I was a police officer I was a police oh. officer for 14 years um, as a detective sergeant in London. And wow, so very... can you come back and do another whole podcast <laughs> on that, please? <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, so, I mean, for me, very used to dealing with kind of first aid emergencies um, in real life. Um, I, dealt, I was actually at Edgware Road during the London bombings. I was one of the first mm. officers on the scene there. And I think for me, um, it highlighted that if everyone just had a little bit of first aid training, so many more lives could be saved. I love getting stuck in the first aid side of things. It doesn't frighten me. It was actually when I was pregnant with my third child that I was in a coffee shop with a friend and we had our toddlers in high chairs and her daughter started to choke and she didn't know what to do. And it was that case of just Ooh. freezing. And obviously when you're in a coffee shop, there's lots of people around and everyone just turned around and looked. And it was that moment of like, okay, she doesn't know what she's doing. I do. I'm a police officer. I have training every year. It comes very naturally to me. So I picked up her daughter and I performed the back blows and I was able to remove the cookie that she was choking on. And she's absolutely Aww. fine. We're all still best mates. We go on holiday together and they've all grown up together and it's wonderful. Well, I'd be disappointed <laughs> if you were best mates after you saved her daughter's life. How old are your children, Denny? Oh, so they are 12, 10 and 7 now. <laughs> right. Gosh, you got your hands full with homeschooling. Yeah, yeah. Lucy, what about you? Yeah, hi. Hi, Georgie. So I'm um, a mother of two girls who are 8 and 6. So joining the homeschool uh, bonanza. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the juggle of being a working mum. I'm a private GP. So my husband and I set up our own private GP clinic uh, oh. so five years ago now so you're so you're living in working marital bliss at the moment <laughs> yes yes I'm not sure I'd ever recommend going into business with your husband but but um it has its pros and cons shall we say but I'm no. sure I'm sure it does um, well perhaps we should start off talking first about what first aid means as a parent 
for us um, in Daisy First Aid is we know how blooming brilliant the NHS are. You know, we have the, the most respect for them, certainly now more than ever, but we love them before. But for us, the importance is that we don't know how long an ambulance is going to take to get to your address. And we're lucky in London where we are that we could be waiting, you know, minutes, but certainly in other areas of the UK, you could be waiting so much longer. And those precious few minutes, but if a child is ill or injured, could potentially save that child's life. And there are really good, simple steps that we can teach parents that could save their child's life whilst waiting for an ambulance to arrive and before you get that medical professional advice. So that's what we're most passionate about. And is time more critical for babies? I mean, clearly, if you're choking, you're choking. It doesn't matter whether you're two months or 80. But are, are babies weaker and therefore more susceptible to emergency situations than children? Do we naturally get stronger as we get older? I think babies are more vulnerable to lots of different things. And certainly, I would say in general, babies and young children, accidents are one of the most common reasons why babies need hospital care or you need an ambulance so from that point of view I think that you know they're much more vulnerable to that they put things in their mouths they crawl around they tip things over much more likely to end up in accident emergency I think as a parent of a young child than you probably ever were you know as an adult what are the main emergency situations that come up as parents that we need to be aware of? Certainly burns are really, really high up on the list. You get an awful mm. lot of um, A&E submissions for burns in children. I know from working with the um, child protection that certainly one of the highest and biggest causes of burns in children is hot drinks. You know, it could just take that baby's reflex of just a, an arm flicking up in the air or a leg just to jolt that yeah. cup and cause it. And sometimes it, for parents, it's it's awareness and people going, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that mm. or I hadn't thought to do that. So little mm. things that we can give them, guidance, tips. Let, let's talk a bit more about burns. I think that's a really interesting one. I mean, God, I had a family friend who, as a child, actually picked up a cup of hot milk and poured it down her chest in her high chair. I think she wore a vest for over a decade. She was so badly burned. So for me, it's something I remember very much as a child. Her going through that, you know, if that does happen and it and it, your child does get something boiling onto their skin, what is the first thing you should do? Can you talk us through the steps you should take? Yeah, of course. And I think this has changed over the last couple of years, um, and it, but it's changed for a really, really good reason. And they've done a lot of research on it. But actually to cool a burn, I think most people know that if you burn yourself, you should cool it down. It's fairly general knowledge. But actually to cool the burn down for a full 20 minutes is, is the length of time that it would take um, to cause minimal damage and to actually you can you can save the skin in so many ways by doing it for that full tw- twenty minutes. And what, what does the what does the cooling it down actually do? Because I always wonder, is this doing any good? What is it that what is it actually doing to the burn? Essentially, you know, your your skin is literally burning. You like like you're burning your 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 supper. Um, you know, with, with especially if I'm cooking in the kitchen, probably. But you know, you're literally with a burn. You know, you are yeah. You're damaging the layers of the skin, and the deeper that burn goes the more harm it does. Getting lots of cold running water on it for at least 20 minutes, you will carry on cooling that. Because it's a bit like, you know, running water is much more cooling than say just putting ice or something or cold, something cold on it. 
because eventually, you know, when you're hot and you put something cold on and then after a few minutes, that cold flannel isn't cold anymore. Yeah. You know, it's become close to your skin temperature. I hadn't thought before, you know, I always thought that you remove your hand, say it is from the point of heat and the burning stops, but you're saying it actually is continuing to burn through the layers. That's how yeah. thought of it that way. I mean, you talk about running water. We often reach for a bag of peas or ice. You're saying water is better, are you then? So under a cold tap and you just stay there. You just stay there, yeah, which I think probably with small children is often the is the tricky part, I think, practically, isn't it? It it's feels really like a very long time, doesn't it? You know, 20 minutes, we actually time it. It's an episode of EastEnders, that's how I always qualify. <laughs> One thing to also note, especially with um, young babies and children, is because they find it difficult to regulate their own temperature when they're younger. So if there is a part of the body that has been burnt and you're putting it under cold running water for 20 minutes, it's important to be mindful to keep the rest of the body warm so that we don't overcall the rest of the body um, because we don't want to end up causing hypothermia in a child that's now freezing because they've burnt their hand so keeping the rest of the body warm removing any clothing if you can from where the burn is um, obviously if it's stuck if the burn if the clothing is stuck or if you've got jewelry that you can't get off then leave it and cool it over the top but actually trying to remove jewelry clothing um, and then cooling would be better as quickly yeah. as you can Okay. Absolutely. But if it's stuck, you leave it there and you let a medical professional do it. Exactly. Um, and, and at what point do you need an ambulance? Really, if it's a burn on a child, you should seek medical advice any anyway. Um, if it's a severe burn, then get an ambulance. Or if it's just a minor burn, then just pop them up to the local A&E. You can take them or even to your GP if it's mild. We were talking through accidents. What's next on the list in terms of likely accidents for children, babies and children? Ch- choking is a massive one. One thing we do recommend, um, certainly in our classes, when you've got a baby or a child that's on the move is we mm. teach them to do the house crawl. Well, that's basically getting on your hands and knees and crawling around like a baby, trying your best to find as many hazards as possible. Because <laughs> See, this is the parent. <laughs> this is the parent. Right. Because actually what you find is we had, a le- we had a lovely lady actually on one of our classes and her poor son choked on the wrapper of a cream egg. And it was a tiny little bit of foil that was underneath the sofa that obviously from an adult's point of view would never have been seen. So for her, um, it was an absolute traumatic event. We get people now to crawl. You you can find wires. You can just see everything from a baby's perspective. Mm, Good advice. Yeah, it it really does highlight a lot of hazards. But how big does something have to be for a baby to choke on it? If they can fit it in their mouth, they can choke on it. Now, let's say the worst does happen and your child does start to choke. What do you do? Sometimes people get very confused with gagging and coughing and choking and which, Mm. you know, where do you step in? And actually, if a child is coughing, it means they're breathing. It means the air can go in, air can come out. And actually, the body is doing absolutely the right thing. It's coughing out. So it's important to let that happen and let the child to cough it out themselves. Okay. The point in which we need to intervene is when choking is silent and there's no air going in or out. Um, there's a distress in the baby's face or the child's face. And they actually, when they're not breathing, and that's where we need to step in really, really quickly. So what we would do if it was a baby is we would lay them over our arm and we would give them up to five really firm blows to the back using the palm of our hand in between those shoulder blades. Mm-hmm. And when we do a demonstration, we show it it's quite hard because actually mm-hmm. you're saving this baby's life. 
You know, it's, it's as simple as that. So the harder you do it, the more effective it is and the more likely you are to remove the blockage. So sometimes when we do a demo, you sort of see the parents wincing a little bit, which is why we get people to practice. So up to five of those. And then if that's not effective, then we turn baby over and we do chest thrusts, which is a thrust sort of on the rib cage. Sort of if you imagine where your armpits meet in the middle, armpit to armpit, that centre of the chest. Okay. It's an inwards and upwards thrust. And we do up to five of those as well. And then we repeat the cycle, repeat the cycle over and over again um, until medical help arrives. At what stage are you not putting the baby over your arm? And what are you doing in that, that scenario? Yeah, so baby we class as newborn up to the age of one. Um, and then once they get to the age of one, then we would lean them over. So whether or not they're sitting down or whether they're standing, you can lean them over one of your arms and then you would give them the back blows with the heel of your hand. Again, it's the center of the back. It's the middle, you know, in between the shoulder blades, a good firm blow to the back. And then when they're over the age of one, we actually turn them around and give them like a bear hug from the back, find their belly button, pop the fist, our fist above the belly button and then put our other hand over the top. And then what we do is we give a pull in, in an upwards thrust. So if you've ever seen kind of Mrs. Doubtfire, the film hmm. where, you know, where he's choking in the restaurant, they used to call it the Heimlich maneuver. We call it abdominal thrust. So okay. essentially what you're doing is you're pulling it inwards and upwards to try and force that blockage out. That is then applicable to any age child, presumably. Yeah, that's from the age of one all the way up to adulthood. Never stick your fingers in the throat. If you're dealing with a baby or a child and you look in and you can see something really obvious in the corner, you know, in the cheeks or something that you can take out, then yeah. absolutely take it out. But we never want to go poking and prodding down the throat because we could actually either push it down further or we could um, affect the airways and make things much worse. So no sure. poking and prodding. I would just say that I think it, like choking is such a big anxiety for parents that it's such a great one to really kind of get down and know what to do. I mean, especially around, you know, babies and babies starting to eat and starting solid foods. I mean, so often I see parents who have kept babies on purees and things like that, perhaps a bit longer because mm -hmm. they've just been so worried about mm. giving them something they might choke on or that they've tried something and they have done perhaps a little you know coughing and made some noise um and then that can really spiral you know into into other feeding issues so i think it's just a really good one to feel confident on and if a child is sick and, and they want to eat again that's okay is it so i think as, as it depends like if it you if they have like choked on like a chunk of melon Carrot. or something and yeah. they've yeah and they've sucked it you know they've done a little vomit on their high chair and now they're happy to carry on eating their spaghetti bolognese or something then that's fine <laughs> if it's more the scenario that perhaps they've got one of these horrid stomach viruses or tummy bugs then you know and sometimes they're sick and then they're still hungry for milk then that is also fine but sometimes then I say try and encourage them perhaps just have a little bit see how it goes in their tummy <laughs> you know yeah. before you sort of you know quite often they'll down a whole bottle of milk and then again after being sick and then five minutes later it all comes up again yeah yeah you know, you're back to square one sure give it some time and and before we move on from choking, um, tell me, are mini eggs and grapes as dangerous as we are led to believe? 
hate them absolutely hate them <laughs> yeah that's a yes yeah I mean my my children my children will happily you know admonish um other children who whose perhaps parents send them with a grape or something in their snack box at school because they've been so drilled into them that that grapes must be cut let's talk about CPR I think along with the Heimlich maneuver it's the thing that springs to our minds um the quickest when we talk about first aid it's obviously a terrifying situation. What is it? When do you use it? How should you do it? Yeah, CPR. I mean, this is like worst case scenario, isn't it? And it's a subject that when we teach parents, we're always very mindful that we don't want to absolutely terrify them mm. because it is rare. You know, it is rare. Um, but also it's important in those very first few minutes whilst waiting for emergency that we know what we're doing and we get into action really quickly. So, you know, CPR is when a child or anybody actually is not breathing okay so this is where we are going to have to perform chest compressions it's where we're going to start performing breaths for them to keep them going whilst waiting for the medical experts so with babies and children it's more likely if they stop breathing that it's a respiratory problem so it's a breathing problem much more likely than for it to be their heart so we give them what's called five rescue breaths first. And essentially what that is, is we are holding their nose and we are breathing into their mouth. So giving a nice seal of our mouth over theirs and giving them a breath enough so that their chest rises. So it's not a lot just of flat breath. on their back here, legs flat, everything flat. Yeah, just put them on a hard flat surface. So ideally, if they're on a bed, take them off the bed and pop them onto the floor. Okay. Um, and then you'll be able to see that chest rise really effectively. And it's five rescue breaths. So you're breathing in and then taking another breath for yourself and then another one. If it's a tiny baby and you can get your mouth around the whole nose and mouth of them, then do that. But otherwise we're pinching the nose and um, giving that breath for them. So yeah, it's little puffs of air until their chest rises. And then once we've done those five rescue breaths, hopefully if it's a respiratory problem they might start breathing again but if they don't then we go to chest compressions and with a baby so newborn up to the age of one we just need to use two fingers because baby's bones are really soft so we don't need to put a huge amount of stress and effort into our chest compressions so it would be two fingers in the center of their chest so again it's kind of that middle armpit to armpit or in between the nipples and then just pushing down about four centimetres down into their chest at sort of a regular interval. So we used to do the Nelly the Elephant song. Mm. So because it's like 100, 120 beats per minute. These days, a lot of the uh, parents don't know that song. So I'm just showing my age completely. Don't know so. Nelly the Elephant. Where have you been? <laughs> so, you know, there are some other songs that we do, like uh, Baby Shark. I think everyone on the planet knows Baby Shark. Oh, so. And, and, and so what, sorry, what are you doing? You're, why are you singing Baby Shark? Right, so we're going to bring... We're going to sing Baby Shark whilst using two fingers, centre of the chest, and we're going to push down and we're going to do 30 chest compressions. So it's Baby Shark. Da, da, da. Oh, no, I sing it. What a terrible singing voice. But you're actually pushing down. Beautiful. Yeah, I know. Um, 30 chest compressions whilst you're singing it, just because it's about the right speed that you need to be pressing. 
done your five rescue breaths, you're okay. doing your 30 chest compressions. Once you've done your 30 chest compressions, you're going to go back to the mouth, pinch the nose, and you're going to give them two more breaths. Can I just ask a question? Baby shark, do, 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 do. How, how many times you're supposed to do 30 in that entire, what, chorus? Or <laughs> No, you just need to count to 30 while you're doing it. <laughs> so but are you going one, two, three, four? Are you pushing that That's, quickly? Absolutely. Okay. And you do that 30 times and then what you go back to the airways, do you? You go back to the airways and you give two breaths and then back to 30 chest compressions. So the only time you do five is at the beginning, the five rescue breaths. Otherwise, it's 30 chest compressions, two breaths. And you just repeat that cycle over and over and over and over and over again. Until help yeah. comes or it kicks yeah. in. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and presumably, the minute you start doing CPR, you're onto you're onto emergency services. Um, it's not a case of trying it and seeing if it works. Yeah, we we recommend you just put your nine 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 on your mobile phone and then put loudspeaker. Um, in, in public places now, there are quite often defibrillator packs, aren't there? You see them in some shops and in the gym and things. Are those for children? Yeah, they can be. A lot of them have pediatric pads, but actually, um, you can use them. Depending, some of the some of the pads are about the size of the sort of your hand, or an adult hand. So if it's a smaller child, you can put one on the front and one on the back. But what's important to remember about defibrillators is all the instructions are on it. So they are for anybody, any member of the public, whether you're trained or not, to use. If someone stops breathing and you have access to one, you open it up, you press the button, the on button, and it talks to you and it will tell you exactly what to do. And is that a better route than getting on with doing CPR yourself, do you think? What would you You need advise? to do both. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So ideally shouting at people to help you. Um, Lucy, what would you add to the CPR conversation? I mean, I, I'm sitting here with goosebumps. It terrifies me. Um, let's hope none of us listening will have to perform it. But um, it, in the event that we do, is there anything you'd add? You just want to start CPR as quickly as possible so like Jenny was just saying, you know, shouting for help. So, you know, if, you're, you're, if you haven't got your phone with you, but, you know, there's someone else downstairs, you start CPR and you shout to them to call 999. You know, yeah. use, and likewise, if you were outside or, you know, in a public place or something, you know, get people to help and make sure when you call 999, you know, you clearly state, I'm with a baby, they're not breathing. Do you know what I mean? And that kind yeah. of activates everything. So, yeah. um, And what does CPR actually stand for? It stands for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Okay, thank <laughs> you. That's been bothering me. I should know that really. <laughs> Someone once said that the best first aid you can give a child is to stay calm. Is that stating the obvious? Well, I suppose that's I, the how thing. How do you stay it's... calm as a parent? Oh, yeah, exactly. And it's I mean, your baby. We... It used to be an adage in the hospital. When I worked in hospital medicine for a long time, they used to say, you know, when you attended a cardiac arrest or emergency, the first thing you needed to do was check your own pulse. Um, and that was a super reminding me. You know, the first thing you do is just, yeah. you know, take, take a breath because you're no good if you're just completely panicked, um, which I suppose is the thing with, you know, calling 999. You know, you need to tell them what the problem is. You need to tell them clearly where you are 
where they need to get to, you know, trying to stay as calm as you can in, in obviously such a stressful situation. This is a, a really grim subject to talk about, but I think it's really important to, um, especially for first time parents, I think it's it's the thing you worry about the most, but it's cot death or SIDS. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what cot death is, about how it occurs, how to prevent it? I think it is just the biggest fear, isn't it, as first-time parents I think you're right like I don't know a single mother that has does not worry about cot death you know it's obviously it's such a you know an awful tragic thing to happen for for a family and I think the good thing is that nowadays there's lots and lots of things that we can do to reduce the risk of cot death Um, and I think that's the first thing is that we really you know Obviously, knowing CPR and all those things is brilliant and really important, but really we want to, you know, prevent that situation ever occurring. I think for parents, really being clear about safe sleeping and how to put your baby down to sleep safely is really important. We're very lucky since the advice changed to put our babies down to sleep on their back, you know, in the months following that change, you know, it made an enormous difference in the rate of cot death in this country. You know, it really, really is important. And I still occasionally come across typically, you know, sometimes a relative or, you know, uh, a grandparent might say, oh, but I put all my babies to sleep on their tummy and they were all fine. And of course they were all fine, Mm. but that doesn't mean that it's, you know, the best thing, you know, science has changed the information has changed right so so what is safe sleep then i mean talk us through putting a baby to sleep safely how do you do that putting babies to sleep on their back is one of the most important things we can do to reduce the risk of SIDS or cot death so from newborn onwards they should always be put down to sleep on their back and really what we talk about is having like a safe sleep environment So that is using a firm mattress, not having lots of soft bedding. So things like pillows, duvets, cot bumpers, things like that, that, you know, they might look pretty and gorgeous, but are not, are not safe and they're not needed really. And then temperature. So most of us tend to have our baby's rooms probably super warm. I remember with my first baby having it sort of almost tropical in temperature because you just worry about them. Sweating in the night. Yeah, you worry about them getting cold and actually it's completely the wrong thing. Mm. You know, they, they, they they should not be overheating. And for that reason, not having their heads covered is really important because that's a really important way of how they can regulate their temperature. So they don't need to wear any hats indoors mm-hmm. at all. And checking their temperatures. So thinking about if you feel, you know, baby's chest or back and they feel lovely and warm, then, you know, they're a nice temperature. Typically, we would say baby often needs one more layer than you're comfortable. I was comfortable. just going to say, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember someone saying that to me, just one more layer than you would have. And, yeah. and, and any advice on blankets? Because... You know, you get given lots of lovely blankets, don't you? And you're sort of desperate to tuck your baby in all cosy. You know, do you advise grow bags, sleep bags? Um, do you advise swaddling? I mean, I I swaddled all my children and they loved it. But I, I think it's it's not always 
um, the advice, is it? Um, what would I, you say? I do. I'm a big fan of swaddling. I think okay. it's so comforting for babies. You know, if you think about it, they're so wrapped up inside your tummy and then they love that being yeah. held and comforted. But you just have to think about the layers because if they're in a vest and then a baby grow, and then you've got all these lovely layers of swaddle around them, you know, suddenly you've got sort of five, six layers around this tiny baby. So yeah. you might want to think about, okay, I'm going to swaddle. So actually I'm just going to put them in maybe perhaps one baby grow underneath because actually it's quite mild. Blankets, yeah, you just have to be really careful that they're tucked in around the bottom and the sides so that their baby can't get underneath them. Anything else to be mindful of um, in regards to preventing SIDS? So smoking is probably one of the biggest risk factors we see nowadays. And why is that? I mean, I think I occasionally still come across perhaps maybe a partner who's still smoking, who even if you smoke away from your baby, there's still a risk there actually, because you know, it stays on your clothes and your hair, you know, those chemicals. So I will say it's a great opportunity if anyone needs an extra nudge to give up, (laughs) to say like, this is it, this is the time to quit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And sorry, so why is that? It's their lungs presumably. It's the effect on their lungs, yes. Amazing advice. The only thing I would add to that is um, co-sleeping. So I mm. had, I've had the very unfortunate um, experience as a police officer of dealing with two, um, two cases of SIDS, both where um, parents had fallen asleep on the sofa with baby. Um, so, yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes those grim realities do need to be highlighted because we are tired, you know, we are exhausted, mm. sleepless nights. And sometimes you just want to have that, you know, a cuddle and just have the, a little nap. But so highlighting things like that as well. I think you're right. Like the safest place for them is in the Moses basket cot, you know, whatever they're mm. supposed to sleep in. But like Jenny just said, like falling asleep on the sofa is the worst thing. Yeah. So if you are in a situation where, you know, your baby won't stop crying and you cannot, you know, you're falling asleep yourself, then, you know, if you're going to fall asleep with them, make sure it's safe. Like don't do it on a sofa, an armchair or something like that. While we're on the subject of sleep and safety, medical advice has changed um, in sort of recent years or certainly since I was a child. And they now advise that, that your child sleeps in your room, um, not in your bed, but in your room for the first six months. Is that is that still the case? And would you agree with that? I think it's still the World Health Organization advice is for six months. But, you know, that is general advice for the whole of the world. And obviously, you know, families in all sorts of different environments and Definitely. In the early weeks, we know, you know, that's when the risk of cot death is the highest. And that's Uh when practically, you know, you're feeding all the time. So it makes sense for baby to be close to you. And what I say to parents is that occasionally you get to a stage, maybe a baby is like four months old and is sleeping like a dream. And you are not, (laughs) you're not, (laughs) you know, and that actually sometimes in that stage, you have to think, well, what's the best scenario for this and you know in certainly in London houses you might not actually be very far from your baby yeah (laughs) Um, you know practically as well so yes in the first six months it's best for them to stay with you but you know sometimes you have to make a decision on what's best for the for the whole family 
Yeah, good advice. Good advice. Um, let's move on from uh, sleep and newborns because I'm sure we could we could be here for hours yeah. talking about it. And I feel for anyone going through that stage, but it doesn't last long. Um, let's talk about uh, banging of heads. I, I've got a son who's had um, gross motor delay, and I, I think I used to get a call daily from the school to tell me that he'd banged his head and not to panic. But it was procedure. But but obviously banging heads is something that's very serious for children hence a school has to call you if your child bangs their head what should you be looking for when do you need to take action you know when should you worry can we talk a bit about heads <laughs> I, I mean I get a call I, well not so much now but I used to get a call at least once a week from my school from my yeah, I mean honestly Jenny <laughs> yeah. me too honestly they go I mean, hello my... not to worry Mr. <laughs> yeah. I, knew, I knew her the name of her voice the minute she said hello I think you're right I mean head injuries are so frequent and so so common and most of the time they are completely um, fine and child will make a full recovery no lasting side effects but it can be so visual, can't it? I mean, I, mm. I, as I said, you know, my son had gross motor delay. So he, I mean, if there was a door, a chair, anything he could walk into, he would, I, I'd come home from work. And even as a toddler, every day there'd be, you know, he'd have a golf ball on the front of his head. And I think my mum sort of said to me, that's good because it means the body is doing X. It's quite alarming, isn't it? When you see the how quickly the bruising comes and things. Can you talk us through what that means and whether it's a good thing and also how to treat those injuries. Yeah, I, firstly, I, you can't tell the severity of a head injury just by looking at it. And okay. that's important. So there was an old wives tale that kind of said, oh, if the bruise comes out, then that's fine. That's a good oh, sign. Really? Yeah, whereas actually you really don't know what's going on inside the head. So it's important that you recognize that and you keep an eye on your child and you monitor them. Yeah. The most important thing is, you know, your child, and you know what their normal behavior is. And I think that's so important. I certainly know a lot of uh, medical professionals will now say to the parents, is this behavior normal for your child? And they really take that into consideration when they're, when they're asking questions. Mm. And I think that if your child, you know, is dizziness, sickness, tiredness, lethargic, listless, or any of those symptoms, which is not normal, then you absolutely should always get them checked out by a medical professional. Yeah. So first, you know, look at them. Are they awake? Are they talking to you? Are they responding as normal? You know, if they're there chatting, you know, perhaps crying, poor little things, you know, that's all very reassuring that, mm. you know, we know their brain is working as normal. And thankfully, children, you know, especially those bumps on the forehead, thankfully, children, you know, that I would say to parents, you know, that that skull at the forehead is built to be pretty thick and to sustain. My God, yeah. it, yes. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> A fair number of bumps, you know, from normal things, you know, but, you know, if if it seems a very big swelling or they're bleeding a lot or you know there's something else then definitely get them checked over by a doctor are there any tests that you can do on them to check that they are okay or aren't no I, I wouldn't really I would just say to just be you know talking to them and are they responding as normal like like Jenny said are they being normal to you because if that's not normal then you know you need sure. to have them checked over and vomiting in children we do worry about that can happen and it's not always a sign that something you know dangerous is going on 
But um, let's talk about rashes. God, that's the other thing, isn't it? I mean, up there with cocktail SIDS is meningitis. Um, I mean, I remember still do. It's the glass, isn't it? And if you can, if the rash disappears, then it's not. Um, but talk us through meningitis. What are the signs? Can children get it too? It's obviously straight um, to the emergency services. I think from a first aid perspective, before Lucy speaks from a medical perspective, one thing that I want to highlight and I know that um, it's really important to acknowledge that not every child with meningitis will get a rash when they get a rash that is a very serious sign that's a medical emergency so children can have meningitis without having that rash it's really important that you're not relying on a rash in order to diagnose meningitis because meningitis can present itself very much like symptoms of the flu. Um, for us as first aiders and for us as parents, if our child is, is not well, and certainly if a child has meningitis, they won't, they won't be well, then you would do all the normal things if a child had a virus, whether you choose to give them medication or whether you choose to just look after them, keep their, their temperature regulated. But if they're not getting any better and they have, so some of the red flag signs would be a temperature um, high-pitched scream in a baby, cold hands and feet, you can't bring their temperature down. Always get them checked out by a medical professional. Um, and certainly if they have a rash, then it's 999. Not every child has a rash. And certainly that rash that you described, Georgie, that, yeah, that every parent learns about, about the glass test. And, and, and for anyone rash. who doesn't know about the glass test, it is... So, so the glass test is when children have a rash, you press a glass against it, and you see whether the rash disappears. So, you know, lots of children get various kinds of little pink spots or rashes and things, especially mm. when they have a fever. And most of the time, with that pressure on them, they will go pale and disappear. But with a particular kind of rash related to meningitis and sepsis in particular, the spots don't disappear, they stay. And mm. That's really dangerous. And certainly, yeah, that's an emergency and they must go to accident and emergency. But it's actually a really late sign. By that, you already got a child that's really unwell. Like Jenny said, the other things that parents really should be looking for, a child that's drowsy or not sleeping or just really, really irritable than normal, any breathing problems. So seeming like their breathing is very fast or they can't quite catch their breath. I think Jenny mentioned cold hands and feet. Again, it's a really important one. So if their body is boiling hot, but their hands and feet have gone very cold. With children, leg pain. So arm and leg pain has been shown to be actually a really important sign. Like a child with like flu-like symptoms who's conveying really bad pain in their arms and legs, that's worrying. If you, if you come across these symptoms and you do suspect it's meningitis, it, it's straight to A&E. But is there anything you should do other than get in the car and drive as quickly as you can? You know, you, you got to get there fast. But is there anything you should do, you know, like with the burn, running water, or do you just, is it just medical attention? No, you need medical help at that stage, don't you? So you need to see a professional. So be that calling 999 or attending A&E. Obviously, if, if the symptoms are milder and you feel, actually, I'm just a little bit worried, but there's nothing kind of dramatic, but you know, that perhaps they have a cough or a cold, but they just seem a little bit more ill than usual, then obviously it might be appropriate to call your GP or call 111. But mm -hmm. if they seem really, you know, worried, then 
then take them to accident emergency. And I think it's really important to say that despite COVID-19 and worries that, you know, they're still there to look after children. I mean, my experience from being a parent is, if in doubt, just go to A&E, you know. Would you agree with that? I think like Jenny said earlier on, you know, parents, your instinct is really yeah. strong. And if yeah. something is telling you, actually, I need to be there, then then that's the right thing. And doctors were always happy to, you know, reassure a parent and send them home. Then that's that's a great scenario for everyone. Are there any other rashes to be aware of um, or concerned about? Kids are rashy. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Whether it's teething rashes, viral rashes, allergy rashes, kids are rashy. And I think sometimes the first thing to do is just to panic because you automatically think meningitis. But if your child's not ill and they have a rash, it's probably something else. <laughs> Lucy could probably give better mm. uh, medical advice on rashes, but no, kids I like are rashy. that. I like that. Kids are rashy. Remember, yeah. people, people listening will remember that. I'm sure it will bring you some comfort at some point. Jenny. Yeah, no, it's true. Like the skin is such a reflection of how they are. So be that you know allergies, too hot, reacting to something on their skin. They just yeah, they do break out in rashes quite easily, and most of the time they're not worrying if you think that they're allergic to something and maybe that's manifested itself in a rash but but ultimately if you think they've had an, an allergic reaction to something whether it's an insect bite or some food or some medicine um what should you do in that scenario i mean anaphylaxis which is a serious allergic reaction is a medical emergency but obviously you can be intolerant to food. You can be slightly allergic to something without it being life-threatening. However, as a parent, you're not going to know that. Yeah. So if somebody does get stung by a bee or they do eat some food and they have swelling on their, their face, their eyes, their lips, their tongue, or they have difficulty breathing, or they just feel tingly, or they have a rash, it's absolutely always better to get them checked out because time is very much of the essence with anaphylaxis. Um, and if it is that, then they need to get to hospital and get treated very, very quickly. There are always just the, um, the very minor little, you know, little blotches and stuff that can come up with food. So sure. can we talk about febrile seizures, convulsions? I remember my brother having one when I was he was he's quite a few years younger than me. And he was bouncing on the bed one minute and the next he was rigid and my mother just screaming to call an ambulance it was the most terrifying thing i think i've ever witnessed i remember it so vividly he was having a febrile convulsion i feel like we know more about them now i've got a colleague whose child kept having them poor thing what are they can you prevent them and what should you do if your child has one um, a febrile convulsion or a febrile seizure is this reaction that we see particularly in babies and young children when usually their temperature goes up really quickly, perhaps often when they're just coming down with some kind of illness or virus. And because of that, they, their brain can't cope with that sudden change in temperature and they have a seizure or a fit. So for a parent, you'll see that they will often, they will become unresponsive. They might clench their fists they might shake their arms and legs. They might, you might see some twitching or biting of their tongue. Obviously, you know, a completely terrifying thing for parents to experience. The important things are, first of all, is just to make sure that they're not going to injure themselves. So because of the movement, sometimes people can bang their head or bang themselves. So just to make sure that you move anything that's going to harm them and that you you don't try and restrain the child when they're having a seizure 
So you don't try and put anything in their mouth. You don't try and hold them still because actually most of the time the seizure will pass very quickly. And, you know, it can feel like a very long time, but it's often actually, it's actually quite brief. And then the child will, will wake up. Um, and, but obviously in that situation, you should call 999 for, for help. And is there anything you should do with the child? Their temperatures can get very high, can't they? So we don't advise, you know, cool baths or like cold sponging of children with a fever. We say, you know, keep them, you know, in light clothing. You don't want to overwrap them if they've got a fever, but you don't want to try and cool them because typically what will happen is they will just start shivering and shaking. And mm -hmm. that can actually put the temperature in the core of their body higher because their skin is cool. Scary stuff. Um, Jenny, anything you would add? Just that what we like to reassure parents is it's actually quite common and it's one mm. in 20 children can have a seizure, a febrile seizure, which is a really, really high amount. Mm. But simple febrile seizures that are caused by that spike in temperature are completely harmless. And whilst they are terrifying to experience as a parent, I think if we educate parents that it will pass quickly, that they will make a full recovery, then it takes that panic level from sky yeah. high, oh my God, what on earth is happening to my child, to going, okay, well, one in 20 kids have this and they're going to be mm. fine. Yeah, it's just absolutely. bringing that panic level down and yeah, just managing it. And if you do manage it and it passes and your child returns to, to normal, should you still go into A&E? Well, we say that if it's the first time that a child's had a seizure, that they they go to A&E just sure. to make sure that there's nothing underlying or anything else that's caused yeah. it. If it's something that happens on a regular basis, then they can manage them at home. We talked a lot about some really alarming situations. Yes. Um, hopefully, hopefully we haven't terrified people too much, but, you know, knowledge is power. Um, are there other common situations that you encounter, Lucy, as a GP that parents should be aware of? The only other thing that comes to mind is um, babies exploring and perhaps taking something that they shouldn't have and if the, if the worst does happen and your child does get hold of i don't know neurofen or sleeping pills or i don't know whatever it is very liquid whatever it, what, what do you do you know you really need to get expert advice because it depends on the medicine and the thing taken stomach pumping is quite rare you know it's very rare to be done nowadays but sometimes they might need other checks or they might need other medicines and, and things done. So you, you need to, to speak out. to yeah, you need to speak to an expert. Uh, on the subject of taking medication children shouldn't, what medication should they take? Could you give us a bit of clarity around Calpol versus Neurofen or paracetamol versus ibuprofen, whatever you want to call it? I think I don't know any parent that doesn't have sort of industrial quantities of Calpol <laughs> and Neurofen in their medicine cabinet nowadays. So um so Calpol, of course, is just one of the most common brands of paracetamol that's used in the UK and an essential in the medicine cabinet for families. It's a very safe pain reliever, fever reducing medicine that you can be give from three months of age onwards um, for all children. Uh -huh. And and you can give it four hourly, but you can only give it four times in 24 hours. 
Okay. And I often suggest to parents, especially if you've got maybe parents, maybe in a nanny or a grandpa or someone else, like send a message to each other or put it in your WhatsApp group or something else so that everyone knows, you know, who's yeah, given what. Yeah, such a what. good point. Such a good point. And so that's really important to record that so we don't overdose children. Ibuprofen. So that's another kind of medicine that we can give to babies and children. So that's from the anti-inflammatory family of medicines. So we'll also help with pain and fever, but we'll also be an anti-inflammatory in terms of if they've got perhaps an older child, you know, with a, a twisted ankle or an injury or something like that. Generally say to go with, with paracetamol first because it doesn't cause any irritation of the tummy. Most children like are quite happy to take, you know, the, the medicine and, and, you know, they have nice flavors and colors and all sorts of things to encourage them. Ibuprofen then for if perhaps you've given Calpol and perhaps they're still feeling quite miserable or have a fever, you could then give ibuprofen then a couple of hours later. Can you, how, where do you stand on sort of back-to-backing them or, or, you know, giving Calpol, then Nurofen, Calpol, then Nurofen? Yeah, so I say like, if you go with the Calpol every six hours, then in between those doses, if they are feeling miserable with the temperature, you can then give the ibuprofen in between. The other thing, of course, is that actually, you know, a fever is a healthy part of our immune system. So if actually they're not too bothered, don't feel you have to get the fever all the way down to normal. Um, can we talk about, um, on the subject of medicine, what should you have, Jenny, in your own kit, if you'd like? You know? yeah, absolutely. I think, firstly, the most important thing is to keep everything in one place. Quite often when we ask parents and we go, do you have, you know, somewhere where you keep your first aid? And they kind of go, well, I've got some cowpaw in one cupboard and then I've got some plasters somewhere. And, you know, just having one place yeah, where so everything true. is to hand. Mm. You know, we have first aid kits that have plenty of plasters because plasters not you know even when a child doesn't really need one it makes everything better better. to parents of younger children if a child really looks like they're in pain and you offer them a sweet you'll find out pretty quickly whether whether they're, they're yeah. going to get through it or not. Uh, that and a cold compress, a bit of kitchen roll with water, you know, and they go, oh, yeah. well, I'll pick you this. Yeah. Yeah. And a Peppa Pig plaster. And if they're still yeah. miserable, they're, and your phone, if they're still miserable, then you might have a proper medical situation <laughs> yeah. on your hands. Yeah. Plasters are plenty. What else is in there, Jenny? Yeah, we even got bravery stickers in there. So we're like, oh, you're so mm. brave. And you oh, put the bravery brilliant. stick on and life is, life is wonderful again. But of course, if it is something a little bit more, then we have bandages. We also have these um, ice packs that you can pop so if you're out and about and you don't have access to cold running water and someone has a burn or if they bump their head you just want to pop a cold compress on it then we can have those they're only like a temporary measure until you can actually get to some water but they're really really handy to have tweezers things like that for splinters and bandages and gauze for you know if you get something in your eye you just cover your eye up um tape Oh, all sorts of bits and pieces. Jenny, talk to us about your first aid courses. Uh, They're called Daisy First Aid. When should people go on a first aid course? Is it when you're pregnant? Is it when your baby is born? Do you need a refresher? What do you advise? We have people that come to us when they are pregnant, which is absolutely fine. We also have people that come to us with their babies because babies are very welcome at the classes. We encourage, you know, bumps, breastfeeding, babies. We love it all. We keep it very calm. There's no kind of scary stories. We don't agree with that. No gory pictures. This is just to empower parents. This is to give knowledge and confidence so that you walk out of our class going, 
oh my god I can't believe I know that I'm so pleased I didn't have no idea and we just do it in two hours we cover a whole range of subjects but they're just little bite-sized pieces because we totally appreciate that you know you may well be sleep deprived and tired and you might have baby with you so little bite-sized pieces for you to remember and we either come to your home and do it in a class you know with your family or friends when we're allowed when covid's over um which is quite useful when you if you've got a nanny or you have some help or you have grandparents looking after your children oh absolutely we get loads of grandparents now because they you know so many do so much of the childcare now and we get antenatal groups together and of course we can do them via zoom now because we're up with the technology so yeah lots and lots of options and they're really affordable they're just 25 pounds Amazing. God, that's £25 well spent. Um, if you've done one, after how many years should you should you do a refresher course, would you say? We think really annually you should do a refresher because if you don't use it, you forget it, you know, like anything. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, I, do, I do my life-saving skills every year and every year there's something else that comes up or something. So it's, it's well worth refreshing. You're going to, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and um, say that I must come along to one of your courses and have a refresher. I did one a number of years ago. I have forgotten most of it, but my God, I remember sitting there thinking, I'm glad I've done this. And if if all it does is give you confidence and remind you to be calm in a crisis, then... Um, that's pretty useful too. We must just say that, and we were all chatting before we started and said there ought to be a disclaimer to say, um, you know, it, it's it's very unlikely to happen and the human body is a tough thing, um, but, you know, it's useful. It's useful to have this knowledge. Absolutely. Um, ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. I've learned loads. I hope people listening have too. And what a brilliant topic to cover. Pleasure. That's it today. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, and we will be back soon. Take care. Bye-bye.